Let's open up the word of God to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Let's go before the Lord in prayer as we bow our hearts before him. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for your unconditional love. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to serve you, for allowing us to be a part of the body of Christ. Lord God, we pray for every servant on campus tonight that you'll empower your servants, help your servants to serve in your love and joy, to serve in your power. We pray that your word will go forth in every part of this campus, Father. And we pray, Lord, that your word will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose that you have set for it. And I pray, Lord, for the gift of teaching, that I would decrease and you increase and be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the title of tonight's lesson is, Are You Good Enough? So, of course, the title is in the form of a question. And once again, if you haven't turned there yet, or if you just walked in, we're in Romans chapter 3. And I'd like to begin by saying that we live right now in a society where people are trying to be good enough. They want to be good enough, of course, to get hired. It's not necessarily a bad thing. They want to be good enough to make their team, football team, basketball team, volleyball team. Some people want to be good enough to earn a bonus, be good enough to earn a certain grade, to be good enough to pass a class with flying colors, to graduate. Some people are even trying to be good enough to earn friendship. If only I were cool enough, that person would be my friend, would allow me to be a part of their group. And so that's the type of society that we live in. We want to be good enough. And some people carry this mindset over into spiritual things. Some people may think in their minds or think in their hearts. They may say, I can earn God's blessings if I were only good enough. If I were only good enough, God will love me. God would allow me to enter into heaven. God will answer my prayers. Bless me with that job. But is that the mindset we should have as it relates to God, the God of the Bible? And is it possible to be good enough to earn our way into heaven. So those are some things we want to consider tonight as we dive into tonight's study. So tonight's study, of course, we have 31 verses and they're rich verses. And as I mentioned before, we're going to attempt to find the answers to these questions. Should we have this good enough? Am I good enough attitude to earn the spiritual blessings or any type of blessings from God. Now, before we get into verses one and two in Romans three, we just want to remind 
be reminded that the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul had just shared that the Jews possession of the law and their right of circumcision in the flesh, that physical circumcision does not automatically exclude them from guilt. Therefore, they are just as deserving of judgment as the sinning Gentiles. And so with that information being shared in our previous lesson, we start tonight's lesson with a question. And the question is, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit or value of circumcision? If what you said in chapter 2, Apostle Paul, is, is true. That we Jews are just as guilty as the Gentiles and as deserving of judgment as the Gentile sinners. What advantage do we have? It's our circumcision profit. In verse 2, he says, much in every way, chiefly or mainly because to them, that is to the Jews, were committed or entrusted the oracles, the oracles of God. The spoken word, the messages of God were entrusted to them. And we still have those scriptures. We still have the Old Testament. And so what was entrusted to them were the law, for example, and the prophecies in the Old Testament. And so they had special insight into who God is, to what God is like. To what God's will is for their lives and for their nation. They have special insight. Revelation from God in regard to God's plan of redemption and his, and his Messiah, his Christ who will be coming on the scene soon. And so they were entrusted with the oracles, with the spoken word of God. That he allowed them to record and preserve. He used them in that way. But even for us as believers, we are blessed to have the scriptures. We have not only what we call the Old Testament, but also the New Testament scriptures. We have in our laps the very word of God. Like what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says that all scripture is given By inspiration of God. The word inspiration means God breathed. And so all scripture, the one that we're reading tonight, the one that we're studying from tonight. Is a message that has been breathed out by God, given to certain men that he set aside to record. And it is profitable for doctrine, for teachings, for reproof. So the word of God shows us what is wrong in our lives. It exposes the sin in our lives. Not only that, but for correction. Shows us how to correct that sin. Whatever's off in our lives. And it's also good or profitable for instruction and righteousness or right living. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word that we as believers are privileged to have. But the question is, do we value the Bible? Do we value the word of God? Do we value it as it says in Psalm 119? 
verse 162. It says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Do we see the word of God as treasure? As something valuable, as something that we cannot live without. Is that the way we see or value the word of God? For what if some, some Jews did not believe? Will their unbelief in verse 3 make the faithfulness of God without effect? Will it cancel God's faithfulness to them? Certainly not, it says in verse 4. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. God is not a liar. It is impossible for God to lie. He is not like man. And so whatever God has promised, he's going to keep his word. Because he is a faithful God. He is a dependable God. Even if the Jews, and many are even today, are faithless. They, they haven't received Jesus, many of them, as their personal Savior and Lord. But as it is written, finish in verse 4, that you may be justified, that you may be shown to be right in your words and that you may overcome when you are judged. That is judged by sinful man or called into question by sinful man. Jesus said that I am the way, the truth and the life. He is God. So what is going to come forth from God is truth. And so if he is called into question by man, God is going to win that case every single time because of who he is. It is his nature. And as we see in those scriptures in relation to the Jews, we can learn something for our own walk, for our own relationship to God. And later on in the letter to the Romans, I'll expound more upon this idea. But God's faithfulness is not dependent upon our belief. Yes, there are some promises that are conditional. They would get so-and-so blessings if they did this. So those are what we call conditional promises. But then there are some unconditional promises. And he has made some unconditional promises to the nation of Israel. And right now, as I mentioned before in a previous study, we are in the church age. And so God is working in and through the church right now that is made up of any person, Jew or Gentile. Of a person who speaks any type of language who have repented and received Jesus Christ into their hearts, into their lives. So that's what the church right now is made of. So we're in the church age, but there's going to come a time during the tribulation period when he's going to turn his attention back to the Jews. He's faithful. He's not abandoned them. But right now it is the church age. In verse 5, it says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates or highlights the righteousness of God, what shall we say? And this is a question that the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul is anticipating. And here's the follow-up question. Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And so the, the idea of this question is, since 
by our unrighteousness, we're helping people to see how righteous God is. So isn't God unjust to inflict wrath upon us? That's the anticipated question. That's the idea of that question. And then in parentheses, it says, I speak as a man. So this is not biblical truth. This is not from God. But he's saying this is a human argument. This is what some people think. But the answer is an emphatic in verse six. Certainly not. God is not unjust who inflicts wrath upon the unrighteous. Just because your unrighteousness highlights his righteousness. That's not how it works. Because if, if God were unjust, how will God, how will he judge the world? And what we see here is an argument that some people use as an excuse to live a life of sin. To practice sin. Well, God knows everything that I'm going to do. And God works everything together for good. So really, it's not my fault that I'm living in sin or unrighteousness because it's really helping God out and really helping other people out because they're seeing how holy and how righteous God is. And you see the folly in that argument. But some people are actually using that argument even today and so if that's the case then god must be unjust they may think or they may say but remember if there was anything unjust about god that was unfair or not right about god he would be unqualified to judge the world but we know that not to be so we know that yes he is qualified to judge the world because he is a holy god he's a righteous god he judges in fairness in fact that is the only way god knows how to judge because that is who he is and so when he judges in righteousness when that day comes god is only being himself for if the truth of God has increased, same type of argument, different word. If, it, if the truth of God has increased or if it's highlighted through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner, still using an argument some people would make? In verse eight, well, if you're going to say that, well, you might as well say, well, let us do evil that good may come. And then he adds, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say. And then anybody who slanders the apostle Paul or anybody who, who slanders their teaching with it, which is from God, saying that this is what they teach, let us do evil that good may come. If anybody says that, about the teachings of the apostle Paul, he's saying, or his comrades, the other believers and apostles, he says, then their condemnation, their punishment is just. Because it is a slander, it is a lie, that is not what we teach. Let us do evil that good may come. See, some people 
want to abuse the grace of God, God's unmerited, unearned favor. Some people want to abuse his grace. And they know that the more sin abounds, grace abounds even more. That there's no sin that can outdo the grace of God. But some people twist it and say, well, if that's the case, well, I'm just going to keep living in sin. I made a verbal confession or profession of faith, but I'm really not saved. But I made that verbal profession. And so I must be okay. This person, that type of person, for example, is a false convert. And so I'm going to live this life of sin because the more I sin, the more good is going to come from it. So let me continue to do evil so that more grace will come. But is that type of person really saved? The person who would, who says that they love Jesus. But then we'll try to find out how close they can live to the edge and still be saved. That's not the right type of attitude. As a matter of fact, word of God says, if you love me, then keep my commandments. And some people will say that the apostle Paul and whoever was teaching with him, teaching the truth, teaching the gospel. Would. Would, would teach that type of thing because they taught about the grace of God. They taught about salvation by grace through faith. So this is probably why they would come up with such a thing. But then you have the, the strict religious folk, the, the, the legalists who hates the word grace. They will rather focus on a works-based salvation. And that type of salvation, that type of theology or teaching is actually a breeding ground for pride. Because now it becomes I'm better than them type of attitude. And I know that based on the word of God. When you read about the the, the prayer that the Pharisee was given and the tax collector was given something that Jesus told. But the Pharisee was like, hey, I'm glad I am not like this, like the other sinners or even this tax collector. Whereas the tax collector wouldn't even so much as lift up his eyes, but just beat his breast and beat his chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, but the legalists, the self-righteous moralists will have the type of works-based attitude or Salvation, that type of doctrine. And I came across a couple of elders and I'm not putting anybody down. This is the truth. I was out walking or running one night and this time no coyote was involved. If those of you remember that story, this time there were a couple of Mormon elders. And so I don't know. It used to be sometimes I'm not I don't have time to talk to them, but it really used to annoy me because I always seem to be busy. I don't really have time. But now when they come, I see it as fish jumping into my boat. That's how I see them now. And so, okay, if you're going to try to strike up a conversation with me and you want to talk, okay, I'll talk. 
And so I paused there and talked to them and, and they, and needless to say, they didn't like the teaching of salvation by grace through faith. They wanted to take it a little further. They were suggesting that works had to be involved for that salvation to be complete and to do that. And just to so, show you an example of it's us better than them type of attitude uh, to try to show how silly the teaching of salvation by grace through faith is. They brought up the example of Hitler and the murder of, uh, you know, so many millions of Jews. Well, what about Hitler? Would he be saved by 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 grace through faith? Like, yeah, well, if he was alive. And he repented and received Jesus. Yes, of course, there will be some consequences in this life for murder as murderers today will have consequences, for example, jail or maybe the death sentence, whatever the case may be. But if they really repented and received the Jesus of the Bible, and that's how I talk to Mormons, no disrespect, but I I say the Jesus of the Bible for a reason. Because I'm talking about the Jesus as he revealed himself. And I let them know we're not talking about the same Jesus. But anyway, they brought up Hitler into the conversation to try to show how silly I was. How to to quote from the Bible in Ephesians 2. But that's what religion does. Legalism does. It's a I'm better than them attitude. And so some will even go to that other extreme when it comes to grace. In verse 9, because I don't want to stay there too long. I'll go into another sermon. But, But in verse 9, it says, what then? Are we the Jews better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, that is Gentiles, that they are all under the power and guilt of sin. As it is written. This is quoting from the Old Testament scriptures. There is none righteous. There's none who always does what is right. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God or looks to God for help. Verse 12, they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. They become useless. There is none who does good. No, not one. And this is talking about humans, sinful man, mankind, men and women in our very nature. Verse 13, their throat is an open tomb or grave there with their tongues. They have practiced deceit, the poison of asps or poisonous snakes or vipers is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, are in their paths. One translation says, everywhere they go, they cause ruin and misery. I like that translation of verse 16. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under or who have the law. Of course, the Jews have them that every mouth may be stopped. All the excuses are over and all the world may become guilty before God. 
Therefore, by the deeds or works of the law, no flesh, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge or the awareness of sin. And so it is proven that no person can perfectly obey the law of God in his or her own strength. And because of that, no person will be justified by the works of the law by trying to keep the law in their own strength. Because the purpose of the law is to show how sinful we are. But what does it mean to be justified? What does justification mean? It means that we are freed from guilt and declared righteous. In other words, we're giving, given a right standing with God. And we are treated as though we have never sinned. So not only are we treated as though we have never sinned when we are justified, but the positive part of that is that the righteousness that comes from God is imputed into our spiritual account. On top of that, and justification is not a process. Sanctification is that process of us becoming more and more like Christ and hopefully sinning less and less. But justification is a one-time deal in that salvation, in the salvation of mankind. And so it is an act. Again, not a process. That's what justification is. We have a right standing with God. But now, at this time, the righteousness of God or God's way to make people right with him apart from the law, apart from people trying to keep the law in their own strength is revealed being witnessed or told to us by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe for there is no difference whether Jew or Greek. It's no difference, rich or poor. There's no difference. And so the idea of this righteousness of God being imputed into the humans or mankind spiritual account was actually hinted at in the Old Testament. That's what it means when it talks about the law and the prophets. And so it was hinted at that it was foreshadowed in the Old Testament that, oh, wow, God is going to account people righteous through faith. In fact, we saw an example of that with Abraham. And again, that's going to come a little later, so I don't want to get too deep into that. But it was hinted at. But these scriptures are clear here. How are we made right with God? How are we justified today? How are we justified? How are we, be, how are we declared to be right with him? It is through faith in Jesus. Faith in Christ alone. In fact, this was one of the reasons that the apostle Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. He says, for in it, in the gospel in Romans 1:17, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Not just at the beginning stage of salvation, but throughout even the sanctification period is to be a life of faith. So not only will we have imputed righteousness into our account. That's our standing. That's a once and for all deal. But also as we continue to live by faith, because it says that the just 
shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. As we continue to do that, God will help us to be in our lifestyles what we are in our standing. Our standing is righteous. But as we go through sanctification, he's going to help us to live righteously so that we become what we already are in our standing. And that is again is in it's because of our faith in Christ. For all have sinned, and many of us have this memorized in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we all fall short of God's glorious standard of holiness and perfection. We fall short being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I like that word freely because it means undeservedly or without a cause. So without a cause, without anything that we have done or earned, we are justified by what? By God's grace, his unmerited favor through the redemption. That is that that payment that sets us free from slavery to sin. And therefore, it sets us free. If it sets us free from slavery to sin, it also sets us free. That redemption, that payment, sets us free also from the penalty of sin, which is death, eternal separation from God. Whenever you think of death in the Bible, it's talking about a separation. That's what death is. Physical death, separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death, the person could be physically alive, but spiritually dead, which means that they do not have a personal relationship with God, separate from God. And if a person dies in that state, then they will be eternally separated from God. And so we are set free from that, from that penalty to sin because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid the fee for us to be set free because he did that. That justification is available to us. In verse 25, whom God set forth, speaking of Jesus, he set him forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance and God's restraint, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. That is before Jesus died on the cross to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness in the way he handles sin. That God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so there's another big theological term there, and that's propitiation. Jesus became our propitiation. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that not only for us as believers is Jesus the propitiation, but also for the whole world. So that gets rid of the notion or the theory of the limited atonement. There is no limited atonement. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Now, will the whole world benefit from it? No, because not the the whole world does not have faith in Christ. But if you are a believer today, you are enjoying the benefits of the propitiation. That means that Jesus, by his death, by the shedding of his blood, that means he appeased or he satisfied God's righteous anger against sin. That's huge. That is huge. And so the question comes up because this is brought up in verse 26, keeping propitiation in mind. 
How can God justify the sinner and still be righteous? How can he do that? How can he be just in the, in the justifier? How can he do that? Well, one's because Jesus paid the penalty for sin. And so God is not excusing sin. Yes, at one time before Jesus came, no, he never excused sin because he still at least required an animal sacrifice. And all of those sacrifices were pointing to Jesus. They were shadows. They were types of Jesus. All of those sacrifices, but also those animal sacrifices were IOUs until Jesus would make the final payment. And so because Jesus made that final payment, because a holy God demands that sin will be paid for, will be punished, Jesus paid that. And so he's just. God showed his righteousness in that, that yes, sin is punished. The son of God, Jesus, paid for it. And so he's just. That's off the table. And that, of course, allows him to be the one who justifies or declare the sinner righteous. But the sinner who repents and puts their faith in Christ. And I like what it says in Isaiah 53, 11, Just to show you that this was hinted at or prophesied in the Old Testament. It says in, in Isaiah 53, 11, he shall see the labor, speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, he shall see the labor or the suffering of his soul and be satisfied. He's going to see the fruit of that suffering that he went through and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, notice servant is capitalized. By the knowledge of my righteous servant, he shall justify many. For he What shall bear their iniquities, their lawlessness, their sins. So as we read all all of that and consider that, some questions are brought up, valid questions. So where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith, boasting is excluded. Nobody can boast. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified or declared righteous and have a right standing with God by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he only the God of the people who have the law? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles who were not given the law? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify or declare righteous the circumcised by faith, referring to Jews, and the uncircumcised through faith, referring to Gentiles, non-Jews. So if that's the case, do we then make void the law? Do we overthrow or make the law of no effect through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish, we uphold the law. And Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. So no, the law is not a means for a person to have a personal relationship with God. It's not a means for a person to, to um, get to heaven. But as we learned earlier, it points out sin. And, and the law shows us that we need a savior. And so the law has a purpose. It just has no uh, power to give us new life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, we uphold the law because 
it, it has a purpose. It convicts people of sin, shows us our need for salvation. In fact, Galatians 3.24 says this, therefore the law was our tutor. The King James Version says schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And so the law, yes, it pointed out sin, but it also was doing something good and pointing people to Christ. Hey, you need a savior that we might be what? Justified by faith. And so what is a tutor? A tutor was pretty much a guardian or some type of guide of the boys during that day and age. It was usually, uh, that responsibility was usually given to, uh, maybe, a, an entrusted slave, a responsible slave. And he would guide the, the morals of that young man, of that boy. In fact, the boys were not even allowed to even step out the house without these tutors or guardians, schoolmasters, as it says in, in the King James. They couldn't even step out the house without them before arriving at manhood. And so the law served in that role. So now Jesus is here. Here you go. You're a sinner. You need a savior. Go. That's the law's job. But as people, as as Bible-believing people in this room, and as people who have just read Romans 3, and many of you have probably done a pre-study because we have a lot of theologians in this room. And so I have to study that much harder in case you have some tough questions for me. But anybody who has heard or have read these first three chapters of Romans, they should not. We should not come away with the thought that, but hey, by ourselves, we're spiritually okay. We shouldn't come away with the thought after reading or hearing these first three chapters that, hey, we are good enough for heaven. We are good enough to earn the blessings of God. It's sad because at many funerals, I know it's a sad time for people. People are grieving, but at many funerals or memorial services, people are so quick to put people in heaven, people who... You know, I'm not saying that these people didn't receive the Lord in their final seconds that, you know, a lot of times we're not there to see, obviously. But they're not sure of that person's salvation. But so so quick, oh, they're in a better place. You know, for many of you, I'm pretty confident of that. I can I can be confident at your memorial services. But like, yeah, they love the Lord. But it's sad to to go to a funeral or memorial service and you don't know. How do you comfort that family? Please, if you haven't received Christ tonight, don't put any of us in that position. That is difficult. We want to comfort the family, but then we don't want to lie either. Because and, and some will say, oh, he was a good guy or she was a good gal. And so they would use that as a basis for that person being in a better place. But is that type of thinking okay? See, chapter three, this chapter three alone points out several pieces of evidence. And they show that, no, we are not good enough in ourselves to make it to heaven, to be in that better place. And to requote Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of God's holy standard. Fall short of his perfection. And specifically, as we look at verses 10 through 18, 
And I'm not going to reread them, but just point out some things. Just as we look at those verses, we have proof of specific examples of our moral corruptions, which is depravity, if you ever heard that word. We are depraved, morally corrupt. Because in those verses, in verses 10 through 18, the word tells us that none of us are righteous. None of us are always doing what's right. It shows that we lack spiritual understanding. It says that none of us seek after God. None of us are natural God seekers left to ourselves. We are not seekers of God. And so the scriptures are truthful in that. They are honest in that. And you could back it up by several scriptures in the Bible. Because you see that God is the one who initiated the salvation process. He is the one who sent his only begotten son. Jesus says, I came to seek the lost. He is the one who left the 99 to go find the one who was missing. You see, God is the one who initiated the salvation process. In fact, in Romans 2 and 4, it says that it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. So none, nobody are natural. None of us are natural God seekers. None seek after God. The scriptures tell us in verses 10 through 18 that we all went out of God's way. We have all made ourselves useless. Why? Because we are not living for the glory of God apart from Christ. And there is none who does good. Our lifestyle is not good all the time. It talks about our speech being corrupt. You see how depraved we are. Even all the way down to our feet. It says that that, that our feet, we would even use that to put ourselves in p- position to commit violence, as it tells us in verse 15. And then in verse 16, we even leave a mess. We leave destruction and misery in our path. We just start mess and, and then we move on and then all kind of junk is behind for other people to clean up. The sin nature of mankind, of humans and And it tells us in verse 17 that that we don't know where to find peace, suggesting that sinful man does not have peace. There is no true peace apart from God. Apart from faith in Jesus. And and when you look at all of these sinful characteristics, these these evidences here that we are morally corrupt. That we are not good enough, when you see that evidence and you. And you wrap them all into one. And if you can give a summary statement, it is found in verse 18. Why is that? Because there is no fear of God. In Proverbs 16, 6, it says, in mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. But if a person does not fear God, if they don't take God seriously, then they're going to walk in evil. They're going to walk in sin. That's going to be the norm of their lifestyles. But here's the thing before. Before we can be helped, we have to first see our need. And that's one of the purposes of the lessons tonight is to help us to see our need. But if we see our need, if we understand the consequences, then we're going to gladly take the offer of being justified by faith. We'll gladly take that offer. Because, yes, I'm spiritually bankrupt. 
And we're going to receive that righteousness from a perfect God. The only way sinful man could have a right standing with him. And the good news is people who are in the body of Christ have already taken advantage of this offer. First Corinthians six verses nine through eleven. Now check this out. Many of you would cringe as we read through this, but it says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. So in other words, the the one who submits and the one who's active in that homosexual relationship, both of them, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers or verbally abusive people, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But check this out. If you're in the body of Christ, it says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, set aside for God's purposes, set apart for his purposes, but you were justified. There's our word in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. We once lived those lifestyles. But we have been justified because of our faith in Christ. As the worship team comes forward, it takes the stage. I just want to share with you that when we have this biblical view of our depravity, of our moral corruption, and when we understand that the blessings of God, like justification, are available to us because of God's grace, then we're going to experience a few things, some beneficial things. So again, understand our depravity. That's why I want us to get to or be reminded of that. Understand our situation. Some of us need to be reminded of that, our situation without Christ. Because we need to understand as believers how blessed we are. And if you're an unbeliever tonight, you need to understand how blessed you could be Although your situation is bad, although you are depraved. But if we understand those things that, hey, we are blessed. Although we are bad off, we're spiritually bankrupt. Then the first thing we'll experience is victory over the sense of entitlement. God, I deserve to be happy. I deserve this blessing. Well, if we understood how depraved we are, how broke we are spiritually and, and, and really that all we have, all that's available to us is because of God's grace. We would have that victory over that sense of entitlement, that spoiled child attitude. Number two, we would also have the victory over the tendency to boast in ourselves as we learned in this lesson. If we only understood how morally corrupt we all are without Christ. To the point that Jesus had to take upon a human body and die in our place. And that the only way we could have a right standing with God and go to heaven. If we only understood that, that it's only available to us by the grace of God, the unearned, unmerited favor of God. Then there will be no boasting on our parts. And number three, if only if we remembered where we came from. If we only remember how bad off we were before Christ. If we only remembered how blessed we are because of the grace of God. Then that will promote 
thankfulness on our parts. That God, I know that I don't deserve to be in your family, but you justified me anyway. Lord, you look at me as if I've never sinned because of my faith in Christ. And so, Lord, I am thankful for that. God, for all the sins that I have committed, some of which, if you knew, you probably wouldn't even want to be my friend. And you can say that probably about yourselves also. But God, you have forgiven me. God, you have called me to this. God, you have allowed me to serve you. If you only understood how bad off we were and that we are only blessed, that we are only justified, that we are only forgiven because of the grace of God, then we will have that heart of gratitude. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, remind us, Lord, when we begin to get spoiled and begin to complain and when we begin to be ungrateful, Lord, we begin to boast about things that are happening in and through our lives as if it's because of us. Remind us of where we've come from, Father, that it's not because of us, but it's because of you. It's because of your grace. Lord, and if we've been proud lately, Father, Father God, if we've been ungrateful lately, Father, if we've been acting spoiled lately as if we deserve everything and just complaining, forgive us. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who has not repented and receive those blessings, the blessings of justification and salvation. I pray, Father, that you would convict them of sin. That you point them to Jesus. That you would draw them to Jesus. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we praise you. Because you don't see us as believers as we used to be. You see us planted in Christ. You see us as if you're looking at the righteousness of Christ. And we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for coming out tonight. God bless you. God keep you. Keep each other in prayer. Continue to pray that as we go through this study or any study of the word, that that we'll see things from God's point of view. Not allow ourselves to get off track. Oh, there have been some spiritual battles past couple weeks. And sometimes the enemy will bring up the past. But according to God, that past for me is, is done. That won't be used against me, against you again. The gavel has been pounded. You're declared righteous. You're declared innocent. 
And so I want you to leave here encouraged tonight. You're going to heaven. And those those demons who bring up your past, they have a future as well, but their future is in hell. And Jesus even said that hell was created for the devil and those fallen angels. And so there is a saying, and I didn't make this up, so I won't take credit. That when the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him, and I'm going to add through Christ, of his future. God bless you. God keep you. Amen.